0: Hello, and welcome to the Freightvine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at Chainalytics, and today I'm joined by Bill Driegert. Bill is currently the Director of Uber Freight. That's Uber's logistics on demand business that connects shippers and trucking companies across the U.S. and Europe. Prior to joining Uber, he spent time at Amazon as Director of Planning and Innovation with oversight over new initiatives in final mile delivery and truckload. Bill was a founding team member of Coyote Logistics, which has since been acquired by UPS. There, he served as the company's chief innovation officer. He started his career, though, building race cars in Vermont before joining PepsiCo to start this much more glamorous career in logistics and transportation. Following my conversation with Bill, I'll be joined by Dr. Enami Yub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. <music> Bill, welcome to the Freight Vine podcast. Um, we've known each other for a little over 15 years. And as we were saying earlier today, I, I think we met when you were finishing up your master's degree and I was just coming back. So we actually never totally overlapped here at MIT. Um, so over that time frame, what do you think are the big changes you've seen in the industry? What are the big changes that you think have had the most impact?
1: Yeah, so the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. I, freight historically has not attracted a lot of investment in terms of Technology and uh, capital. And it's only recently that I've really seen an acceleration in interest and the market really start to shift. And I think two things are really driving that. One is Uber freight like solutions, the other is autonomy, both of which uh, I've had a keen interest in for for quite a long time. Just in the last uh, six years, there's been over 40 startups that have come to market calling themselves an Uber for freight. And so I think the industry has started to understand what the possibility is uh, in this space. On the autonomy side, of course, there's been a lot of investment. It's continuing to heat up in that space. And I think that's something over the next 10 to 20 years that we'll see really shift the market.
0: What I thought was hilarious before Uber Freight happened, and it's been almost exactly three years, right? Everyone wanted to be Uber for freight. (laughs) It it cracked me up. I I remember having a slide and I had at least 40 companies and that's what they wanted. They all wanted to be that. So then you kind of squashed them when you all came into the market.
1: Yeah. Actually, right after uh, we started, it all They all switched to digital freight matching. Yeah, that was the
0: Armstrong report. It was the first time I saw that, uh, but it's kind of funny. So you mentioned it's a crowded field. The last time I remember seeing investment like this was 99 to 2000, when the internet was going to disintermediate. Brokers were going to be gone, right? But then the money went away, and now it it suddenly came back. So how are you differentiating yourself at Uber Freight from all the other digital freight matching organizations out there?
1: Yeah, great question, because there's been a lot of companies that have entered the space, uh, all with a very similar idea, slightly different execution. I think the core problem that most of those companies have run into is that there's a chicken and the egg problem in freight and that to truly achieve the benefits uh, that Uber Freight can offer, you need significant scale. Right. Uh, and we didn't really start to see a lot of those proof points uh, until about 18 months in where we're seeing the one second books. Uh, we're seeing loads get recovered within minutes, all the advantages that density bring. So, There's several things that allowed us to get there, I think, faster than a lot of others have, and that will let us keep accelerating. One is that we are part of Uber. Uber is a transportation platform. Uh, We were able to tap into the operations teams, the technology, uh, the networks that existed within Uber. That name carried a lot of weight. So I think shippers understood immediately that Uber had credibility, had proof points. We'd been able to deliver within technology-enabled operations, environment, rides, and they could understand how that could translate into freight. And there were also the fact that there were all these Uber for freight companies. When we came to market, a lot of companies were waiting, I think, for somebody that was well-capitalized, that had the, the track record, that could really go after this in a big way.
0: Uh, but it's it's funny because I always thought you know, the the local rides within a area that, that Uber dominated um, is very different from long-haul trucking. And so I thought they'd be totally different. Um, but you, you were mentioning earlier, what percent of the Uber platform can be recycled and is being used to some degree in Uber Freight.
1: Yeah, so one of our engineering leaders told me that over 80% of the code base has some overlap, meaning that we were able to tap into a lot of the capabilities that Uber had already brought to market. If you think about pricing as an example, Uber already does point-to-point pricing. So if you're going from A to B or B to A, you get a different price. And those prices are based on local market dynamics, how many drivers are available, how many riders are clicking. Same applies in freight. How many drivers are clicking on the application, how many loads are available. A lot of the same logic applies, and plus Uber's dealing with geo data, right? So it's it's mapping, it's location, it's tracking. I always thought the length the
0: haul would have a big impact on it because for a passenger, when I want an Uber, I want an Uber, I want it now. I want it. I'm not doing it for two weeks in advance. For freight, you tend to see maybe same day, but isn't a lot of it one day out, two days out? Or are you seeing that changing?
1: It it is still. Typically, two days or more out. So, drivers are booking 24, 48 hours out. Um, But where we see the advantages, where we really see the magic happen, is in that short cycle execution. Uh, And that's where uh, I really see the difference in what we can bring to market. Historically, if you wanted to book a load, it would take many phone calls, uh, hours, it would be a, a prolonged process. We have loads every day that book in seconds, which before just wouldn't have happened. What that enables is all of a sudden you can recover a load in seconds. We, As an example, we, we allow drivers to just bounce themselves off of the load, no friction in the process, because I want to know as soon as a driver's thinking about bouncing, that they might not be able to service that load, I want to know so that we can recover and we can send that load immediately to thousands of drivers. And then they'll log in within seconds. They see it, they book it. Compressing that allows for a lot more reliability, flexibility. So over the last three years, have you
0: seen the lead time for when um, the uh, load is offered to when it's, it's expected
1: to move? Is that shrinking? We don't see it shrinking up because it's mainly driven on the shipper. Side. Right. In terms of shippers uh, have their processes in terms of when they're planning. Uh, and then and when they hit our boards, you know. then we get them out onto the market and then the carriers start to,
0: start to book them. So when you're talking about the quick, you know, in a, in a second, that's when they're accepting. It's not
1: they're accepting and moving right away to pick up the load. It, okay, correct. got it. There are, we do have some great examples, and we've yeah. had some r- really cool moments where a driver was supposed to pick up within an hour. They bounced. We recovered it. They were immediately moving in five minutes. We do see that happen, mm. and so that hasn't been able to happen before. We do see that, which then allows us when there is that last-minute need that we can service it. The majority of the freight, though, is still that kind of 24-hour plus, right? Uh, but the power of the platform is that instant execution. Right, And I do think that over time, what happens is as we create this capability, it's to shift expectations of shippers in terms of when can they source capacity. And over time, part of what I expect is that the market will become more instant and yeah. you know, the, the planning cycles will start to compress, and you will see that freight becomes more real time.
0: Yeah, we've discussed this and yeah. we don't agree, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking about, you know the the flywheel and the chicken the egg problem. So for the new Digital Freight Mattress 1 coming up, I can understand your advantage for that. And when you grew Uber Freight, you didn't start national. You started a geographic
1: – was it Texas? We started in Texas, Texas Triangle. Right. It's uh, Dallas to Houston to San Antonio and Austin. Right. right. there, And forget about Waco. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and
0: so then from that, then you grew – once you had density, did you find that you then grew in
1: another separate area or did you expand the network? Yeah, yeah, we've got some great visualizations of this that i uh, I love, which is you can see uh, you can see that density in Texas really take off right at right. of the gate and then then we moved to California and so then you see the west coast light up your corridor right. from Los Angeles to San Francisco and then Chicago area Midwest lights up and then the southeast lights up and then the northeast. Uh, so we we did go deep on Texas at the peak we were doing about half of our volume in that okay. that in that triangle Texas right. triangle. So, so
0: it's interesting because that's, it's, it's more like pockets and corridors that mm-hmm. you grew. It wasn't like the growing web because freight moves in pretty well established tranches. Yeah. Branches, you know? Now, so that's how I understand how you'd compete against the startups. But what about the established, the CH Robinsons, the Coyotes, XPOs? They had more scale, more density than you mm-hmm. did. So what was the difference there?
1: We believe that through technology, we're able to leverage the scale more efficiently. Okay. And so. The fact that 100% of our freight from day one was available on the platform, uh, that means that immediately uh, we are creating a more efficient network with that applies to 100% of the freight. Uh, where what we've seen uh, with the larger competitors is that they are embracing the future and they are starting to invest and build out these capabilities. And we do expect that that will accelerate. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great companies and great people and uh, they all like understand, I think, at this point that the market's shifting and it's becoming more accessible, and that drivers are going to expect that they can book their freight via the app. It seems like the biggest change
0: is not necessarily the connectivity shipper to carrier; it's to the driver now. I mean, that's just to me. That's the big thing that's changed, and it's made me wonder: is the idea of the carrier going away? Do you need the? Is that? A, is, are they now a middleman in between the shipper and and the carrier itself?
1: So that's I don't know. We still, so we always work through the carrier, right? Um, but the majority of our carriers are owner-operators. So it's at that point, it's really one and the same. And so when we started, we focused on the owner-operators because that does give that direct connection to the driver because the driver and the, the carrier are the same. Um, what we're seeing, though, is that we are using... We're, we're building more and more capabilities for the fleets, and the fleets then are inclined to give their drivers more control as well.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. So kind of the driver focus is something that's really kind of unique and earlier this summer you released your first facility insights report is that the right name yeah so uh, is where drivers kind of reviewed and rated shippers and receivers kind of is it kind of like yelp for drivers yep, exactly. yeah so how has that turned out anything surprise you out of that what how's that how's that working
1: yeah it's been great we have over 400,000 ratings in the system now 400,000 drivers who've given drivers something who've given or locations for okay yeah, 400,000 drivers have given a rating and over half of those, they've actually entered a review, which wow. is an exceptionally high number. That is um, very high. Because I I don't know the exact stats, but we have a lot of team members that have worked at other, like Google or, or Yelp. And uh, I think the industry standard is below 1%. Meaning wow. that even if you put a rating in, that you don't type a review. It's just, right. It's not, yeah, I guess the uh, drivers have a lot hit. of time yeah. on their hands. Since yeah. they can
0: only drive that 11 hours, <laughs> you know, they got some extra time. I
1: think they've and, and they've got a lot to share. And what we see is that re- reviews particularly tend to be targeted towards other drivers. Um, was that I mean, a surprise? I, I think somewhat. I thought they would be more directed towards the facility. Me too. I thought it'd be more like, you jerks, you know, yeah. <laughs> you need to
0: fix this. But yeah. it was
1: more like a peer-to-peer. Yeah, it's more like when you're going to the facility, go to, to the gate on the right or the guard shack is wow. here or go to this this door. And, yes, they have uh, restrooms. But, yeah, there's a lot of interesting surprises in the data. Um, one is that when drivers are picking up at a facility, they tend to rate it higher than when they're dropping. Okay. Interesting. I, more happier at the beginning of the, the trip, <laughs> trip than the <laughs> end. Um, I think other obvious takeaways that uh, we see in the data is that the ratings do make a difference and that we see that even one star, like a four-star rating versus a five-star, it takes half as many views to book a five-star rating on the pickup facility than a four-star rating. Wow. So from a market and efficiency and a cost, all that translates in that if it's if it takes more drivers to book a four-star facility, you're, you're going to end up likely paying more having to go to bigger driver population the other is within industries so beverage tends to perform better uh, beverage facilities well yeah. from from origins yes,
0: yes. right because they, they unfortunately they usually deliver to groceries which yeah, usually which are at the other end that. of yeah. the
1: extreme right yeah. right yeah and then the last thing is it's uh, the biggest impact on ratings is is loading times which i don't think is a surprise but we see it clearly in the data
0: so i mean uh uh, drop and hook obviously is the fastest. Uh, I know we looked at some ELD data here, some projects that we're looking at. I'm still shocked at how long even drop and hook would take on average, and it was almost an hour total time in and out. But then drop and um, live load, live unload just multiplies it by three. Did you see? Have you seen a change?
1: Like over, it's only been done for what six months now. Mm-hmm. Do the shippers get access to this? They do. So shippers can log in; they can see all their facility data. We have seen action taken uh, and we've worked with shippers on that. So we, I'd say the overall reaction from shippers is very positive because all of a sudden they have data right. and it reinforces things that they may have already known or intuited, um, but now they have actionable data. So they have a facility in the network that's not performing. They can take the report they can go to that facility, work with it and improve it. Yeah. Because a lot of times I talk to a lot of other shippers.
0: And it's the transportation guys would love to be more efficient, but it's it's things beyond their control. Yeah. It's things in the DC or in labor, or other things that they don't control. And they need, um, I, I was talking to one guy and he said, the best thing that happened to freight was the, the capacity crisis. Cause then it suddenly got management attention. And so finally they were able to get resources to focus and improve the
1: problems. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it takes that third party, third party uh, data source to, to really drive. Kind, kind of validates it. Validates it.
0: So prior to MIT though, you worked at Pepsi. Yes. As a manufacturer and then you went to the to the dark side, right? (laughs) (laughs) Broker and everything. How has your time working with a manufacturer as a huge shipper
1: changed the way you think about things at Uber Freight? I was very fortunate where I was at Pepsi. I Got a job as an intern with a bunch wow. of PhDs that uh, had been laid off from um, I2, which was in, in Texas. And right. Friedelay lay had just installed their system uh, and they went through a massive reduction force. And so to lay hired a bunch of these PhDs in operations research. And so I got plugged into this team that was doing manufacturing planning models. And we oh, were wow. mixed integer programming models. And it was Moselle back in the day. and first thing that I learned in that experience was that execution systems are more important than planning systems. What do you mean? Why why is that? Because we would come up with these fantastic optimized production plans. We would send them to the floor and within an hour, they'd be out of compliance. And so then we would come up with all these like uh, compliance to plan metrics to try to crack the whip and get them to drive compliance. But we really didn't start moving the needle until we built better execution systems. So what we did is we shifted and we said, well, let's take these these optimization tools. Let's put them in front of the users. Let's give them access to them so that they can reconfigure the plans in real time and have different options and uh, build more of an execution tool versus a pure planning tool. And uh, I think ever since then, I've always believed, and this is, this is a big part of my philosophy of like why Uber Freight and why execution and faster execution, I think, is so important. Because the, the better you can execute, the less important it is to get the plan perfect. Yeah. And, but the, the problem is people love to do the perfect plan. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> so I know when I was doing procurement in the nineties and early two thousands, people would spend six months with a scalpel designing this carrier gets 3.2 loads a week here. And then it all goes to hell. And, um, I, I, I don't think you were at our roundtable when we talked about this. We did some analysis at chain analytics. And what we found is that the average half life of contracts for truckload contracts that are bid out once a year is about yes. four months. Meaning half the business that was contracted never materializes or goes away within four months. Yeah. And it's so the question is, which, which pains me yeah. as you well, know, I spent seven years building planning tools. So it's <laughs> <laughs> My dissertation yeah. was all about it. So it's kind of uh, shocking, but, but that's one of the, the big drivers now is what do you do differently? So, yes, doing the one year contract. And we actually have a project this year saying, okay, what should I do differently? Should I do, um, one-year contracts for some pieces of the business? Should I do 30, 60, 90-day contracts? Should I do something flexible? So I think shippers, because of the crisis, are more amenable and looking for different ways to contract or arrange. I don't think it's going to be 100% spot, but it's certainly not going to be, let's throw everything at 100% contract, and then we'll spot on the mistakes. Yeah. my,
1: My perfect vision of the world, the contract should always be paired with the planning decision when it's being made. So at Pepsi, I focus on tactical capacity planning and manufacturing planning and distribution planning. Every one of those had a different planning horizon, a different impact. They all took transportation cost as an input, but it was transportation cost based on a matrix that was generated a year ago. And then when you actually executed, you go go to market at that point, or you bid for the next year, or you right. bid for the quarter. Um, but in my perfect vision of the world, once I'm making as a manufacturer. Uh, once I'm making the decision to reconfigure a production line or to source um, from a particular facility for the next two months, at that point, I want to know, I want to be able to generate the price and I want to know that it's guaranteed. So then I know I'm hedged and I know that my budget for that project or that decision is locked in. Meaning that if the model planning system is telling me it's going to cost me $2 million in transportation spend, if I could lock that in in real time, without having to then take it to an RFP process and go bid it, find out because i'm using a set of assumptions to drive that decision right if i could just lock in and get a real-time signal get a guaranteed rate and compress that whole cycle let's say let's talk
0: through that then so let's say you're doing planning a production run and you come up with the plan what's the typical time I, i'm kind of ignorant here between when the plan comes up before it gets executed for manufacturing are we talking days weeks months is it usually like on a 12-week
1: rolling forecast so from for manufacturing planning, we would typically, we would have already made the capacity. So Pepsi, we would make a capacity plan uh, or distribution plan. So we'd make a capacity plan, which is on a quarterly basis, we would decide where are we going to make uh, Cool Ranch Doritos okay. in a 64 ounce bag? Is it going to be in Topeka or is mm-hmm. it going to be in Irving? And then at that time, that would then change the transportation lanes. But transportation right. costs would be an input to that. And then as an output, it's okay, we're gonna make it in Irving for the next three months. And here's our projected volume based on our annual forecast.
0: And so what you're suggesting is when that gets rolled, then then transportation would then say, Okay, let's procure that now. The challenge is wouldn't they need to know the transportation costs ahead of time to make that planning decision? They do, but so could but I wanna be able to see the get a real-time signal and okay. transportation cost at that point in because, the planning system because the time there isn't that long it's not like i'm come, coming up with this production plan and it's going to be put in place six months from now yeah it's a matter of weeks yeah okay that that's possible yeah
1: is any do you know any company that's doing this um well so we are now okay <laughs> providing real-time uh pricing we're integrated within sap we're integrating within mercury gate that's within the transportation systems but by providing that then our shippers now have a real time signal for what prices are today that they can use to, to make better decisions around. And it's the first step. Right. 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 A longer journey. And so the, the yeah, that, that, that's
0: interesting. So they have the real time. They don't necessarily have the, do they know what the capacity could be? I mean, that's, is it for a hundred trucks, 10 trucks? We, you know, it's essentially a market signal. It's is a market signal. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's flip to the other side. Um, ELDs are now being hardened enforced starting, what, April uh, 2018, I guess it was. Um, have you guys seen any impact? Because there was a lot of noise about the smaller carriers, the owner-operators, would be impacted the most. Because, uh, I mean, most of the the tier one large carriers had have been using ELDs for a while now. They're comfortable with it. Did you see any impact at the
1: tail end of the carriers? We saw the same market that I think everybody experienced last year, which is there was a uh, as the ELD mandate came out, there's combination of factors that resulted in, in a tight market. When We're seeing the same market this year where it's a surplus, and so we're not seeing the impact of the, the ELDs okay. in, the, in the market today. Um, I think hours of service uh, are continue to be top of mind, and it's something that ultimately we want to work with our carriers, help our carriers find ways to, to make them more efficient and get better utilization out of the hours. But I think the problem we're solving is really improving network efficiency, driving utilization, allowing carriers to make better decisions. I do believe that by giving the carriers more options, they're able to manage their hours more effectively. Uh, and I think the fact that, that we came to market during the ELD mandate, certainly from a carrier perspective, all of a sudden they have a constraint. They have a hard constraint. They're going to want more options. We're another option. And we're an instant option. And they can immediately start planning and thinking about their day uh, because we provide full transparency and rates right. and all the detail. You don't get access to their ELD data, do you? We don't. Uh, yeah. So we don't know what load a driver's done beforehand, what you, load they're doing.
0: After. How many hours they have or any of that. That's theirs to manage. Yeah. Do you look? To, do you want that? Would you want to know the number of hours they have left? I mean, that's that's information you could use. Ultimately,
1: the driver, um, the driver's making that decision or right. the carrier's making the decision around how they're going to utilize their hours.
0: Yeah, because t- I've talked to shippers before mm-hmm. and they would love to know the number of hours because then they would plan better. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things that do you want to – it's like playing poker. Do you want to show all your your cards? And so it's an
1: interesting – Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, there's risk associated with that as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. So same with a small carrier side. One of the biggest challenges small carriers have or owner-operators is that they have to do live load, live unload because they have one trailer typically. But now you've introduced Power Loop. Um, which is more of a universal trailer pool. Can you describe that and and how is that working?
1: I'm a a huge believer in what what we can do with parallel because if I'm a single owner operator, I don't want to drop my trailer. It's my only trailer. And so we recognize that was a problem pretty early on because on the shipper side, we're often dealing with very large shippers who have drop operations or looking for additional drop capacity. They want more flexibility in those drop operations and owner operators and small carriers can't participate in that because they, They don't have the capital. They can't drop the trailer. And so that was the initial problem we were trying to solve. What we've also found is that it drives up utilization for those drivers because now they can participate in these these drop and hook, drop and hook, drop and hook. All of a sudden their days are denser. They're driving more, waiting less. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a financial opportunity for the small carriers as well.
0: And is it growing along the same path as Uber Freight grew, starting in the Texas Triangle, and then
1: moving to other pockets? It is, yeah. So we're currently deep in Texas, and then we're looking to expand to other markets. From a operating model, so not only does it allow the carriers more density, from a shipper perspective, having been on the other side of the table, uh, what I'd seen before is that you'd get trailers at a dock in peak times where you wouldn't be able to source a driver from that carrier, and maybe you have an interchange agreement with other carriers, but you still can't source a driver. And all of a sudden, if you've got a universal pool or a power loop opportunity, then we can source from 400,000 plus drivers that are on our platform. So it gives a lot more resiliency and flexibility in the capacity side too. Because
0: I know some manufacturers that tried to do this back in the late 90s, early 2000s, they called it the vanilla fleet, Mm -hmm. and it never worked. They just couldn't get the density,
1: the density of it. And so... Yeah, we're not the first that have thought of a similar idea. I think it's unique in execution and the fact that we now have this, this... the, the app and the direct access to the driver and we can source the capacity much more efficiently makes a, a huge difference in how we can execute that makes in sense practice. makes sense and i think it is a problem that definitely lends itself to technology to solve because it's a operationally complicated but ultimately it's about optimizing utilization of assets and right you know it's a routing and execution problem yeah it, i
0: mean the hard part is balancing the trailers mm-hmm. and that's why you got to stay within your triangle that's that's the but that's the bread and butter of one-way transportation mm-hmm. last question and I asked this of most, most people that are doing this podcast, uh, autonomous trucking, when, when it's kind of moving along, autonomous vehicles and everything, at what point do you think 50% of all highway miles oh. for trucking will be done by a robot? So I'm talking not last mile, not first mile, last mile, but things on the highway. At what? How many years when half the freight moving by truck is driven by a robot, not a unit?
1: That's a tough one to answer because I'm a huge believer in that. Op- autonomous trucking. yeah. But I'd say I've gotten a little more conservative. I'd say if you'd asked me this question in 2016, I would have said, you know, 2020. <laughs> I see them everywhere. <laughs> I probably did say that in 2016. Um, but now here we are in 2019. And I think the industry has realized it's a much harder problem than we initially expected. At the same time, there's been an increasing level of investment. right? Um And I do see that uh, the industry is making strides. So 50% is tough, though. I think that's 10, 15, 20 plus years out. I've been saying 15, but I had yeah. uh, Chris Altamire kind of said
0: 10 to 20. So everyone kind of branches, gives <laughs> a yeah. wide, wide uh, burst. Yeah,
1: so I put myself in that same okay. consensus range.
0: Yeah, that'd 15, be interesting. Split the middle.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I'll be long retired. Um, Bill, thank you. That was great. I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, so um, appreciate you being here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Bill. That was really interesting. Now, I'd like to bring in Dr. Inami Yub to discuss the market update and forecast.
2: Welcome to the -the Over-the-Road Truckload Market Update for October 10th, 2019. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with Dry Van. Active rates dropped 1% over the last two weeks, whereas spot rates increased by about 2%. Replacement rate is still negative and is about negative 3.5%. This means that the new contract rates are about 3.5% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates dropped 1% over the last two weeks whereas spot rates increased by about half a percent. Replacement rates are still negative and is about negative 4.5 percent. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates show a drop of 1 percent and spot rates also dropped by about 1.5 percent. The replacement rates for intermodal is at negative 1.2 percent.
0: All right. So Enam, the replacement rate is still negative for drive and temp control, and intermodal. So what do you think this means? What are the takeaways that shippers should use for this week?
2: I think the overall market is continuing to show there is more capacity than demand. And as we mentioned in our last update, if you took a reasonable rate increase in late 2017 and 2018, like most did, and did not bid out your contracts this year, uh, you might very well be above market. You might want to consider a new bid or a rate reduction conversation with your carriers before it's too late. Yeah, that that
0: makes sense. And one thing I know we've had comments from different shippers saying, you know what, uh, looking at different indices and everything, it seems like the rate should be, the contract rate should be dropping faster than they appear. Uh, because if you look over the last, you know, five, six months from July, let's say, the active contract rates dropped by two and a half percent. But if you look at like we do at the replacement rate entering, new contract rates entering, they've dropped by 7%. So why do you think it is, Enam, that the index active contract rate is moving so much slower than the new rates entering?
2: Yeah, I think the, the new rates entering, which is you know exactly what it means, is those rates that are entering the routing guide. Whereas the routing guide itself is, as we had mentioned before, is the full bathtub. So for the overall temperature to drop in the bathtub, it takes time. So that's the whole reason we measure not only the active rates, which is the actual sense or the measure of your overall rates, but we also measure the new contract rates, which is what the shippers are getting when they go out to market.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. The other thing that's interesting is that we saw spot rates are going up a little, while the active contract rates are going down. And I'm curious, uh, in mid-September, you know the price of fuel, number two diesel, on average spiked uh, the latter part of September by like 10 cents a gallon all of a sudden. I think it was in, uh, in response to the bombing in Saudi Arabia. Um, but it seemed like it's starting to settle down. Do you think that had an impact, the increase of fuel spike? Is that being reflected in the spot market?
2: I don't know, I think so far the the spot jumping around even in in the temp control side uh, on the drive and as in a model, I think it's just you know either it's it's it could be fuel or some seasonal effects, but so far we are not seeing anything that is truly showing an upward trend.
0: Well, that wraps up this Freightvine podcast for me and Enam. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Freightvine podcasts are produced and edited by Stephanie Bond and Abby Haney. As always, we hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. If you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Transportation Freight Vine, please send an email to podcast at Chainalytics.com. Thanks again for listening.